I mean, of all the career paths, I would urge anyone to do the bar over any other because the skills are so broadly transferable. Whether you want to go into education, journalism, politics, whatever it may be, it's such a great suite of skills that you get at bar school, basically. It's worth every penny of your of the training, really. Yeah. yeah. You may not know quite how much bar school costs these days. <laughs> yes, I know. As well. I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe, and this is the Pupilage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. Are you sitting down? In today's episode, we come up against an uncomfortable truth. The law is not for everyone. We have loved talking to lawyers about their work, but what about the majority of law students who don't end up as lawyers? What if you find yourself on that steep path to pupillage and have a nagging feeling that perhaps this is not for you? Or what if you make it all the way to the bar and find that feeling hasn't gone away? Are you hankering after something more creative, more collegiate, or maybe just a little less law? In today's show, we talked to people who found themselves in exactly these positions and heard about the varied, unexpected and sometimes weird and wonderful opportunities that opened up for them after they left the law behind. We speak to Katrina Kuczynski about how she very quickly realised the GDL was not for her and turned her passion for food into a career in PR. We hear from Alex Aldridge, who documented his pupillage interviews in a hilarious column of a national paper before turning to journalism full-time and founding the website Legal Cheek. Catherine Pereira spent many years in practice before walking away from her successful career into politics and is now an NHS director while Olivia Potts left her criminal practice to study at the Cordon Bleu and has become a patisserie chef, journalist and now writer of the wonderful A Half-Baked Idea. And finally, in-betweeners and horrible histories actor Alex McQueen tells us about how the day he didn't get tenancy turned out to be the best thing that could ever have happened to him. Katrina Kaczynski and I met at law school, but we didn't finish law school together because she realised very quickly that it was not for her. So, Tree, welcome to the Pupilage podcast. Thank you. Thank I'm you for coming, to be here. coming and talking to us. So, at what point did you think, hang on a minute, this law business might not be for me? I think I realised quite early on, I found it very stifling. I found it very... Um, uncreative. Um, I was doing fine. You know, I was doing kind of, I was scoring sort of, I suppose, the equivalent of two ones in my essays, but I just was not enjoying it. Did that come as a bit of an unwelcome realisation that actually what I'm currently engaged in is not really what I want to be doing? Or was it fine? No, I was really not happy. Um, And I actually met some really <clears throat> fun people on the course. But apart from, from that, I, found, I, I, I was dreading it. Yeah, I was absolutely dreading going, going to it. I wasn't enjoying it. I wasn't enjoying one, one moment of it, really. So how did you progress <coughs> from understanding, OK, I'm not enjoying this, and perhaps feeling, perhaps trying to suppress that feeling that you had to a point where you accepted... I'm not enjoying this. I don't want to do it. I have to stop doing it. I was living with my sister at the time, who was a journalist. And I was coming home every day, basically, miserable and complaining about it. And she said, I just don't think maybe this is for you. You know, you're quite a creative person and you're very sociable. And um, I know this PR company and they're looking for interns. Why don't you just go along and meet them? And I said, don't be ridiculous. PR's for posh, stupid people 
with lots of pashminas and no brain cells. <laughs> I mean, we'd all watched Ab Fab, right? Um, and I just thought everyone... and. There are elements of it still in that industry, but obviously I, I just said no. And she said, just go and meet them. And I went and met them and I, you know, I sort of made the decision that I wanted to work there. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, and, um, but they sort of didn't offer me a job. They sort of offered me an internship for, you know, a hundred pounds a week. Um, and I mean, it was just such an impulsive thing, but I just, I just had a really, I just went, that's what I just want to go there and be an intern. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. And obviously I called my mother and I said, mum, I'm leaving the law to be an intern and a PR agency in Notting Hill. I've made my decision. And I mean, she absolutely hit the roof and said, well, how are you going to support yourself on hundred pounds a week? <clears throat> are you crazy? What, what are you talking about? But you know, um, did that put you off? Well, yeah, because, I mean, I couldn't actually uh, afford to live. I had to have, you know, Saturday jobs and, you know, really it was tough times. But I was totally adamant that I did not want to go back to the law and that I was going to do this. And also when your mother tells you no, you know, again, it was a sense of rebellion. (laughs) I totally rebelled, basically. Um, And I mean, she didn't speak to me for about six months. And I think now she's quite proud of me, but... You know, we'll see. Yes. So for that period of time, then, when you have got a really poorly paid job in the PR firm... Yeah, I mean... Oh, and having to walk the office dog. Yeah, I had to shovel dog poo for um, several months were you the pavement. Ha- but were you happier, though, Katrina, shoveling dog poo than doing the GDL? Um, yes or no? Yes, I was. I was. It was a really... Um, I feel I was ready to be in the world of work. Um, I mean, my minuscule salary, you know, once it was gone, barely paid my rent and my phone bill, et cetera. But I was making, you know, I was earning money. I felt grown up. And the job was, despite the shoveling shoveling dog poo, there were also really great things. Like I got to go to all these events and I was meeting people. And I'm a Londoner, born and bred. But, you know, when you're 24 years old and suddenly all these doors are open to all these incredible places and meeting chefs and I'd always been obsessed with food but I never realized that I could turn that you know I wasn't gonna be a chef I wasn't gonna be a waitress I wasn't gonna be a general manager so to work in and my company specializes in restaurants and yes you know food and drink and stuff so yeah to be able to kind of work in that sector was incredible and did the company that you worked for specialise in that sector as well then well, so I started off on the they had two sides they had fashion um which I, I was like I definitely want to work in fashion oh so glamorous you know I thought it was great and I've always loved clothes and stuff but um I spent the first three months basically in a cupboard when I wasn't shoveling dog poop um <laughs> sending send, Still better than sorry I know I will move on from that I don't want to sort of really discourage your your young listeners that that's what will happen if you leave the law but uh I was in a cupboard basically sending clothes samples and and, you know, occasionally I'd get to, like, run a fashion show and be part of all that. But I soon realised that, actually, for me, food, I loved all the restaurants. I loved all the, you know, that kind of life. So they kept borrowing me for events. And then they said, why don't you just move over onto the food side? Yes. Um, so, yeah. Then um, once you landed in the food side of things, what did you... What Were there any transferable skills that you had obtained during your... Um, I don't know, three months, was it, on the GDL? <laughs> a fleeting legal career. <laughs> yes. Do you... Legally not so blonde, or, it turned or, out. Or, or, or not really. Do you think that, in fact, 
you for you there were a whole host of other things and qualities that you had that simply weren't really being exploited in in what you saw at the legal um i think i did pick some things up um i think i picked them up throughout my education which um you know i was very much i think what has stood me in good stead not necessarily just in pr but actually in the world of business generally is that you know knowing that you are intelligent enough to uh, express your opinion and at every stage in my academic career including even here you know being able to formulate an argument advocacy um public speaking all those things have literally stood me in such good stand you know instead I have to pitch to you know I mean at first it was smaller brands but now you know I'm pitching for international hotel groups for large restaurant groups for drinks brands you know we look after big brands like Quantro etc um Remy Quantro you know and I would not, I don't feel, be able to secure that business without having, you know, advocacy skills. Um, And I suppose if I was to say one thing, I probably should have stayed and got the qualification um, because I'm not a quitter and Mm. I don't like the idea that I quit, you know, but I I did. It's the first time I've ever done that, you know. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I felt sort of slightly like, oh, gosh, quitting after three months is a bit, you know. Well, I mean, I know what you mean because I had a career before coming to the bar I used to work in the art world and I recognize that feeling of well I'm failing because I'm stopping this and actually I think for listeners who are in that position when they're realizing they're sort of going through the process of realizing that something isn't the thing that they want to keep keep going on when you know that's true mm-hmm. you need to just embrace that and exactly. not worry about what other people might think Completely. about about you being a quitter or you failing or you not being good enough or any of those things completely agree i really hated the gdl year i mean it was <laughs> yeah. it was the worst year of my academic life and um I found it incredibly difficult, incredibly dry. And as soon as I got onto what was the, then the Bar Vocational Courses, now the BPTC, I, I really started to enjoy it because it was much more practical, much more fun. And I felt like I was starting to be able to make a difference for, for people when I was doing pro bono work and things like that. Do you think if you had got that far and then had been offered your internship, you'd have been more tempted to stay? Or do you think that you, you knew in your heart that it wasn't for you? I probably think I ended up doing the right thing for me. And, and it strikes me as interesting that you have gone, after your internship, you, of course, founded your own company and you're now the director of, <laughs> of a company and self-employed and employer of others. Yes. So um, in some ways, that, those are the very skills that you have as a barrister, that independence and that self-confidence mm. to do those sorts of things. Definitely. So it's, it's interesting that you've taken that path. Tell us about, about what it's like being a director of a company. Um, it's a... I mean, it's... Uh, amazing um I, I have an amazing sense of pride and uh, achievement in my company and um I absolutely love what I do and um it's so easy to get onto the treadmill at university that you're going to go off and you're going to do the law conversion course and you're going to do the bar course and you're going to get pupillage and it's easy to suddenly wake up 10 years down the line and think why am I doing this is this really for me mm. And it's it's really refreshing to hear from somebody who is honest about saying, do you know what, it really wasn't for me and I have no regrets no. about it at all. So I think that will be really useful and as well as very entertaining <laughs> for, our, for our listeners. <laughs> 
stay um, to it. Brilliant. Katrina Kaczynski, you have been enormously interesting for us boring old lawyers. <laughs> Thank you for coming and talking to the Fuflish podcast. Pleasure. Lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. If there was no legal profession and you had to do something completely different, what would your new career be? Oh, that's such a difficult question. <laughs> well, we can ask you what biscuit you'd like to be, if you prefer. I'd be an actor. I think I'd probably write full-time, see what I could do with that. I have spent a large uh, amount of my time at the bar teaching separately, which I have enjoyed immensely, even though it's taken time out of my practice. My two career choices yep. in my sixth form, uh, I wanted to be a stockbroker. Or a barrister. I might be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> you are a writer. I am a writer. I know I... <laughs> Sorry. Um, that, is, uh, that is quite a difficult question. It's actually, a bit of I a think. pupillage question. <laughs> I know, yeah, a pupillage question. Alex Aldridge studied the GDL in New York and then did the bar course in London before becoming a legal journalist. He's written for The Times, been a columnist writing about law and education for The Guardian Law and an associate editor at Legal Week. He then founded the hugely successful website that will be familiar to many of our listeners, Legal Cheek. Alex, welcome to the Pupilage podcast. Hi. I've given a little potted history of your legal career, but I wondered if you could just talk us through it in a bit more detail. Yes, yeah, so um, I, well, actually, I originally studied English, um, and then I did a law conversion course, and then did the bar course. Um, and then when I was looking for pupillage, I started writing a column called... Um, Path to Pupilage, which no I recognise that name from <laughs> your, your I didn't book. know that. Yeah, yeah. You're lucky you haven't been sued. Yeah, we, should, we shamelessly <laughs> plagiarised. No, no, but it's not exactly the most original name. But um, So I, I, wrote, I wrote that, um, and then I started doing paid work for them, and I did... Um, I did a various different series of interviews. Whilst I was, whilst I was working for them, I decided not to um, pursue pupillage. I think I had about, I think about 30 interviews or something, and that was kind of the content of my column. And then I went on to join Legal Week, where I was for a couple of years, and then I started Legal Cheek in 2011, um, which actually started as a podcast, funnily enough. So I started a website to host it, and then which is Legal Cheek, and we started. Do, I started doing. It was just me at that point. I started doing news um, stories and little things, and it, it it got momentum. And it was just at the, around the time when, when in 2011, people were just starting to use Twitter and um, developed a strong following, and actually really sort of caught caught fire in terms of um, popularity. And we focused it much more on students. We had like. Jonathan Ames, working for Legal Cheek for, for a year. He's now the He's editor never... of the... Law editor of the Times. The Times. Um, and we've, we've got... Um, it's like five of us now, five members of staff and, and a little office. And it's most read legal website in the UK. So for those who are doing their legal training, did you find that you were, you were taught sort of transferable skills that became useful to you in the career that you've gone on to forge? Oh, probably not. Oh, um, Alex! <laughs> I, I think the most I think the most transferable skills you learn is, is just in life. For working, really, is 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 where you learn the, the real skills. I, th- I think um, when I when I look back in sort of in education, you, you you learn about. I mean, certainly on the GDL, you learn. Obviously, it's very, you know, you learn about the seven core areas of law, but but that's it's knowledge. It's not really skills. Yeah, but it, but it must have given you quite a lot of um, experience seeing it from the inside that allowed you to write about the legal world. That's true, that's true. You, um, so you, I think that's the knowledge sector side of it. So you learn the, the, you learn about the legal profession, which is it's easy to take that for granted. It's, it's kind of quirky and 
you know, when you describe it to an outsider, it doesn't always make that much sense. So, so knowing about um, how the legal profession fits together is, is an advantage. For, you know, if you're if you're a journalist writing about law, certainly. And, and at what stage did you decide, you know, actually the law isn't for me? I was kind of a... Well, I had this sort of... Na- even probably before the GDL, I kind of was trying to avoid doing a law conversion and ended up doing it. And then towards the end of the course, the GDL, I had this... I'd found it an interesting year, but I had this niggling feeling that it wasn't for me. Um, and then it really did become clear during the bar course. And then... But I kept going. And then during the pupillage interview process, that was just a gradual, gradual moment. And then there's a, I remember the final interview that I had and just saying, just, I actually said to the panel, I just said, this, this is just not for me. So what, so what did you do next then? What did you do the next day? So, yeah, so at that point, I think I was working for Chambers and Partners, the legal directory, and I had a, I had a weekly interview um, for the Times, which was called How to Become a Better Lawyer. And then that then Rainmakers, which was this, this weekly interview with a senior lawyer, or, and then it became a senior business lawyer. And it was for the Times Online law section, which where they, were, they were pushing at that point. I didn't have a paywall on. So I, I, was, I suppose I was quite excited about that because it was, um, I'd been trying to get into journalism for a long time. Yeah. And I now had this, this weekly interview slot, which was, go, was going well. I'd, st- I'd actually stopped doing the Path to Pupillage column because... Um, I think I did about 15 of them. And towards the end, I realised it was... I don't think it was really helping with the pupillage interviews. Mm. And so, so I thought... So I'd stopped doing that, and they'd, they'd given me this new thing series, which I was getting my teeth into, and it felt like it was going somewhere. So it wasn't... I suppose part of that had given me the confidence to say, this, this, isn't, yes. this isn't quite right. How did you begin to build a new life? I did my sort of how to become a better lawyer and Rainmakers interviews for it was about a year and a half and towards the end of that I was also started freelancing for other publications yes and then um but but it was you could see how how hard journalism was it's kind of an outer circle on newspapers but to kind of get into the whether among of like freelancers but to get into the kind of in crowd is is, is really difficult yes um and I was that was sort of dawning on me and and then Legal Week approached me because their features editor had gone on maternity leave um, and so there, there was a sort of acting features editor role there and so and that seemed like a really good opportunity to get kind of experience in a publication um, so that that was that just kind of came about that was actually just before um, the 2008 financial crisis I, I got in there just before that which was quite lucky actually yes so I worked for them for two and a half years and just sort of I learned like the kind of how trade publishing works. So it was so it was actually proved quite useful not to be in a newspaper. Funnily enough, because not only that, because when you're working for a trade ma- magazine, you also got you, you figure out kind of the economics of how a publication works, and you have all the sales team, and they they all work quite closely together, which is quite different to a newspaper, really. Um, th- there is this kind of wall, but but so I, I sort of. Sort of because you wouldn't know how all that industry works um and so getting all that exposure was good and it was just a sort of thing of just I just kind of it just felt right yes. like I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the job I enjoyed what I was doing I was getting to do all I was getting to do news stories I was getting to do features I was getting to do interviews um I was getting to do some stuff on the commercial side I was I was getting to to um early kind of bits of social media and blogging and um so so it was all those and I'd always been interested in blogging so all those sort of things f- fitted together 
And it was, it was, it was like, just sort of, it just felt right. For those out there who may be listening and thinking that that niggling feeling rings a bell with them and they think, well, journalism is something I'm interested to get into. How did you take your very first steps? How did you get your path to pupillage? I'm sorry again. How did you get your path to pupillage column? Um, so it was the first bit was writing about the uh, doing eating the 12 dinners um, and I wrote an article about that and I pitched it to various publications and the, the Times took it, their law section. So it was like published in the paper, which, you know, was, I was like, wow. And they yeah. even did a cartoon with it. Oh, and, that was uh, so great. <laughs> I was so, it was so, it was, it was great. I still remember like um, getting that, you know, when, when that was printed in the, in the morning and going into the, you know, this is all pre-internet and social media. Like, you see the reports of the League of are so young now and they're like, newspaper, newspaper. But like, <laughs> you, you know, remember when like newspapers... You had to go that, and buy all the copies. Exa- exactly, exactly. And they were and huge. Was, yeah, yeah, the, yeah they were bigger and they were, um, they were, they were like a, they were kind of primary communication channel, whereas now there's so many different communication channels. Yeah. So, but I remember going to the news agent and opening it up and seeing like the my article about the dinners in there and just go, oh, wow. And then I, I picked another copy of the time. I was like, it's in there as well. <laughs> it's in that other one. And I remember this, that buzz was was just like really um, over, you know, it was, it was something really strong. I knew, and I was like, I really wanted to follow that because it felt it's really good. People shouldn't be afraid to take a step, make a pitch, think of an article, find out where they can place it and just keep going on that. I mean, it sounds like you... You struck gold pretty much first time. No, no, no because I'd, I'd pitched before doing law. I'd pitched so many articles, which you know, looking back, weren't very good. They didn't really have a strong angle, and I wasn't really coming from anywhere. Whereas I suppose this was the first one that really, um, you know, the subject matter was interesting to an outsider. It was, it was, um, and so, so, I, so I think that's why they, you know, why they took it. Yeah. Um, and the, and that's that's an important thing having something you know obviously interesting to say. But then you you've got the other side of it if that can damage your 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 career. So so if if you're you know because I was using my pupillage interviews essentially as a material for the, yes. the column. Yeah, you were very and, candid and very funny. But that was the the only reason that I was doing that because I was so loving right and really loving writing the column that I was you know prepared to do that whereas obviously that's not a good idea when you've got other stuff that you want to focus on were you asked in people's um, interviews about things you'd written in the column yeah yeah and and that was kind of when i realized that it was it didn't you know if i was going to give the people's interviews a proper shot it, it was not a good idea to to keep writing about them yeah i think that's yeah. a, it's a really valuable advice because i think it's it's so common these days for people to blog and be on instagram and, and put lots of details about their life out there mm. and actually that can come back to bite you in, a, in an interview situation it, it certainly can it certainly can I think you've really got to be careful and you, you, you've got to think what, well, what are your objectives and what, what do you want out of out of what you're doing certainly one thing that strikes me from what you've described is how journalism is a really good um, side hustle for somebody who's going through a legal yeah. career because you can, yeah. you can write anywhere yeah. you can send things off it's not going to take you know you have to do it on a sort of particular day of the week in a particular location and so you can if you want to put your toe into that pond you can do it whilst still training if you're thinking the training's not for me you don't have to quit you can carry on um and, yeah. and try it i think definitely and, and certainly um not just training and practicing as a, as a lawyer particularly barristers because they, i mean you, you just have to look at the kind of 
Twitter and legal Twitter and blogging scene now with, with I mean, there's some, I mean, there's some barristers that have got a real profile of writing st- stuff, you, you know, particularly around Brexit. Yeah. I mean, two things that have struck me from the people that we've interviewed who started off down the legal route and have, have swerved off in other directions is that you have all been extremely independent. So you've often gone on to be self-employed, to run companies as you, as you do with Legal Cheek. You started off doing the writing. You went on to found this website that, as, as you mentioned, has been incredibly um, well-read. But you also are developing that all the time. You're doing events and um, you know, hosting different things on the website. So you know, you've, you've been really entrepreneurial. Yeah. yeah. No, the events has been... That's what I spend most of the time on now, the, the events... Because I think if you're giving away free content, you've you've got to make a business model, yes. and then and the events are d- d- doing really well. So we've started a new events company and a new site to host the events, um, and we've we've done a big conference, which is going to its third year, which has done well, and then lots of smaller student events. I've actually got um, an event in Hong Kong, um, our first international event in a few a couple of weeks, which is exciting. With like load, like Clifford Chance, Ling Later's, Herbert Smith. It's a student that's event. That's amazing. Um, so that's that's so. So yeah, the events are something which is. <laughs> I mean, I'm totally not a natural events person because <laughs> I'm not well organised. But events are hard. It's tough. I mean, I've learned to be to do events. Um, but um, I, but I think that's the thing when you're self-employed. Probably find this is a barrister. You've got to follow the work. Yes. Um, so, you know, it's been very much sort. Of, I've tried loads of things. I've done lots of things that haven't worked but um you know it's every now and then you hit something that really does work and events is is certainly one of them what advice would you give to somebody who is um like you has an entrepreneurial spirit thinking that the law is not for them and they want to go off in another direction what advice would you give i mean life is short they should they should do it they should do it there's no more complicated than that really like if you feel it really you've got to follow You've got to follow your, your instincts. Yeah. Great place to end. Thank you ever so much, Alex. Oh, thanks for having me. If the bar disappeared and you couldn't be a lawyer anymore, you had to have a new career, what would you choose? Artist. Historian. Politics. That's really easy. <laughs> well, I used to say I'd be a florist. <laughs> oh, wow. But, um... I think I'd either be an ice hockey professional. Amazing. Or um, I, I would be on some sort of desert island. Uh, well, really, biology. I love biology. I would have loved to have made like TV programs and stuff about nature. Our next guest is Catherine Pereira. Catherine was a great friend of mine at law school, so I was very keen to get her on the podcast. And having had a very successful legal career, she is now the director of NHS Horizons. So, Catherine, can you tell us a bit about that unusual career path? Yes, and all of these things make sense in hindsight (laughs) um, rather than at the time. So I will present it as though it's coherent, and in my head it is. But what I've basically done is to follow my heart to try and do things that I believed in at each stage of the way, starting with a history degree, spending four years in chambers practising public and employment law, leaving with not a clue what I would do next, um, and finding my way back to my hometown, where I did a couple of things. I stood for Parliament in an unwinnable seat. I had £93 for my general election fund. I had three activists who were helping me. Um, I'll save you the suspense. I lost the seat (laughs) by about 24,000 votes. 
So it's it close. Was, it was close. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was an improvement. Um, and we did take some council seats the next year for the first time in a generation. And it got me interested in this idea of social action and how you run good campaigns. So I then spent five years doing just that, running local political campaigns. Um, and then from there, heard about some amazing work that was happening in the National Health Service, where campaign methods were being used to create more agency, more sense that I can make a change and a difference for myself, but being used on a massive scale. And that's what NHS Horizons, the team I now work with, do. We use campaigning and strategic facilitation and design techniques to try and make big changes in a system which is facing an amazing but also a challenging future. And can you give our listeners, by way of an example perhaps, what sort of concrete things do you do? So a good example would be we currently have 44,000 nursing vacancies just in the health service in this country, in England. And there are lots of ways of trying to tackle that. You can do e-marketing campaigns, you can do recruitment, what I would call programmatic ways of trying to change that. There's also a campaigning element to it. How do we develop nurses to be confident to speak on their own behalf about why it's a great profession? How do we get them into schools at a point at which children are open to hearing about nursing as a career and help to tip that balance? And a lot of that is using campaigning and narrative and leadership development techniques. So we've been working with the nursing directorate to help design and deliver what's known as Nursing Now England, which is the activist part of the campaign. How did you come to the decision that you didn't want to remain in chambers as many people do for the rest of their career? <laughs> so George will smile at this because <laughs> she remembers probably living it with me. Yeah. Um, I come from a legal family on my mother's side. So it's an Irish Catholic family from Belfast. Um, many men were judges and QCs. There was this fine pedigree that I was always aware of. Um, many women trained in the law and never practised. So my grandmother, the story goes, graduated the top in the whole of Ireland in her bar exams. And she worked as a legal secretary, being Catholic and a woman at that time. Um, so I had both a model for what it could look like, but not a model for how I could do in the profession. And I think I came into it with a sense of justice, this idea, this concept, um, and a sense that I was going to be writing some wrongs that were quite personal to me. Not sure I came into it with really any understanding of what it involved in practice day to day. Um, and so the part that will probably make George smile is, <laughs> I would say from day one of having tenancy, which was an amazing gift, I was feeling uneasy um, about whether I fitted in lots of senses um, and whether the day-to-day -day reality was going to help me to do what I wanted to do in the world. Um, but it took me four years to work that through and get to a point where I took the decision to leave. Um, this was back in 2010, and then it was quite unusual for somebody to leave. I think it's become more common quite rapidly. Um, and so it was, it was quite a big deal, or at least it felt it at the time. No, I'm absolutely, yeah, sure. Um, are there any things that you miss from your career at the bar? Oh, lots. 
Um, I'm sitting here with you, aren't I, in a very august room in the Middle Temple um, in lovely surroundings. It's, uh, there are many wonderful things about our tiny office in Coventry around the back of the train station in the <laughs> NHS, um, but it doesn't match the physical beauty um, of where we are. Um, I also miss the people. I miss being around people who are intellectually curious in the way that most colleagues at the bar are. So I miss the camaraderie of it. Um, I was at a wonderful Chambers, 11 KBW, um, and I would have nothing but good things to say about the colleagues, the culture, the environment that they created. Um, and those weren't the issues for me. For me, it was more fundamental around just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should do it. You really need to listen to what you think your purpose is in the world, how you want to be and then try and find a place where you can make that fit. You said earlier that you left not knowing what the next thing was going to be. How did you sort of find the courage to do that? So it was a difficult nine months. A couple of things happened. One was that my mum was diagnosed with cancer, and she's better now. But that meant that me spending more time back home in my hometown became mm. important. So in a way, I had a pull yes. away from where I was. Um, but it was nerve-wracking. I'd saved a small amount of money um, and I was having to figure out pretty quickly what came next. Um, I was listening to some of your earlier podcasts and talking about, you know, just go out and do it work experience and test different options. And I think that for me was key. Um, in community organising, we have a saying that is understanding does not precede action it flows from action in other words you can't really understand what you need to know until you're doing so for me very quickly it was about go out do things with people try different ways of working which is why I stood for parliament in a seat that no one noticed which is how I came to meet some amazing people who were running campaigns which is how I became curious about a different way of thinking about justice that wasn't purely about the litigation side. So I think that's a really important piece of advice then for people who are listening who find themselves in a similar position of thinking, actually, I've worked so hard to get here, but do you know what? I think fundamentally it's not for me. Um, instead of imagining that the answer is going to come, it's a question of going to explore because that will help you understand what the answer is, so to speak. I think that's right. And I took the nuclear option of yeah. leaving Chambers. But equally, um, I have friends who've explored while they're at the bar. So a, a woman I did pupillage with left Chambers in order to become a part-time tribunal judge. Um, and she now does that three days a week. And that's her complete career. Um, and she loves it. So she springboarded yes. into something that was more relatable to what she was doing previously. Um, and there are lots of ways of doing it without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So do you think that your legal training and your time in practice taught you useful skills in the, that have been helpful in the rest of your career? Oh, hugely, hugely. I think the, uh, the robustness of analytical training the ability to synthesise huge quantities of information and then sound plausible when you regurgitate them. I mean, those are, you know, <laughs> they're, they're priceless skills, aren't they? I can see Beatrice yeah. wants to say something about that. <laughs> no, it's just really funny. Um, you know, they're, they're priceless and, um, and I wouldn't change any of that for anything. Um, I think also the profession is very respected. 
So in a way, for me, working with very senior clinicians in the health service and not having a clinical background can be a problem. But if I'm able to say I'm a barrister, it's, it's almost a signifier that I have a degree of training that means it's a credential for them where we can have a different quality of conversation, right or wrong that that is. Nonetheless, it's very respected so you mean you get the benefit of the authority and credibility that comes with the name barrister or the label barrister? Yes. I mean, to make a joke of it, my mum, uh, who can't really work out what I do now, still <laughs> tells people that her daughter is a barrister. Because pe- people get that, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I think there is something, there's something in that. And I think also whether we go into practice, for those of you who've just done a pupillage or are still trying to get one, um, the confidence that you can have from the training and the experience is transferable into practically any sector. Are there any aspects of life at the bar that you are really glad to have left behind? (laughs) Um, Yes, I think... Well, I don't know whether this is an aspect of the bar, but I was young, like many of us are, when we do pupillage. Um, There is a camaraderie at the bar, but there is also, I think, a troubling lack of collaboration. And I don't mean that that colleagues are unfriendly. I mean, the default of the way we work now in my team is we get a problem, we work on it all together, we work really hard to understand each other's strengths and weaknesses, we support each other with our well-being to make sure that we do a good job, and we pay as much attention to that as we do to the substantive work. Um, I've not seen that in the culture of the bar in the same way, and I now know that that's something that I was deeply missing. Those moments when you would close the door and it was just you and the papers for that day. And you had to make an effort to go out and have lunch and see other people. But I'm not sure that well-being in its roundest sense is talked about enough at the early stages of the career so that we're equipped to spot the early warning signs of when we're under pressure, when we feel lonely, when we think it's just us. Um, and I think maybe more could be done around the structure of that. I think it's really interesting what you say because the the sort of structure of the bar and the way we work at the bar doesn't lend itself to that group mentality because you're often, as you say, you're often working on your own. You might be doing a case completely by yourself or you may have a QC working with you or another junior, but very often you're in teams of, of two or perhaps three. Um, going up to the most, you would really be looking at perhaps five And you're not working, although you're working alongside solicitors, you're not really in the same team as them. The dynamic is different from a a sort of team dynamic. Yes. And so you don't have those same opportunities necessarily. And also, when you start working with other barristers, you're often working with them for the first time, and then you might not work with that, that particular barrister again for a couple of years. Yes, that's right. So you don't build up that camaraderie. You don't have that same sense of what their skills are and how they intersect with yours and, and that sort of thing. I yes, think and we also, I think, we you know, at the bar, we uh, pride ourselves on our value being around specialism. And in that context, it's very hard to use the three words... I don't know. Um, and what do they mean? <laughs> you know, and those three words, I don't know, are the opening to possibilities to learn. So often in our team, I will happily now say, I don't know. I have no idea. I do have some good questions about it. And I can come back to you with another member of my team who might have a different perspective. 
my experience of the bar was that's not the culture of the way the conversation flows for obvious reasons around what a client wants to hear. Yes. They don't particularly want to hear their barrister say, sorry, I don't know. That is, of course, um, one of the reasons why we developed so quickly the skill that we referred to earlier. That's to say the skill of being plausible when you don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so. What advice would you give to someone who's in the middle of their legal training, perhaps they're doing pupillage or they're in the first few years of practice and they're having the same sorts of feelings that you had, of thinking maybe this isn't quite right for me? What, what would you suggest? Share it. Um, you know, think carefully about where you want to share it um, with people who will sit with you and really listen to what you're trying to say and help you to make sense of it rather than them having a view as to what you should be doing. Yeah. Um, so maybe not with your pupil supervisor possibly not (laughs) although I have to say mine were fabulous I was very lucky and I did probably test their patience quite a lot with my you know philosophical questions existential angst about the meaning of life and justice Um, but definitely share it know that it is normal you're not expected to have the answers you know the older I get the less answers I have to anything Um, and Take your time. Don't jump to a decision. Take your time, sit with it, um, and explore other options. Go and do. Go and find joy. Try and reconnect with what brought you into the profession in the first place. Thank you, Catherine. That's wonderful advice. Thank you so much for coming on the Pupilage podcast. Lovely. If you couldn't be a barrister anymore, there was no more law, and you had to choose an alternative career, what would you choose? I think I'd go back to what I've already done, which was a safari guide. Oh, wow. Oh, that's such an easy question for everybody else in my family who are gifted musicians. <laughs> and it's a really bad question for me because I really wanted to be a lawyer. I don't think I could have been a poet. It would have been dreadful. It, would have been, I'd say. <laughs> it was touch and go whether I went to aim for medicine or law. I think I might have gone into HR. Journalism. I have no idea. Um... When I was a child, I wanted to be a window cleaner. I just found it really soothing watching window cleaners. (laughs) (laughs) Olivia Potts joined Five Paper Buildings as a pupil in 2011 and, having been taken on as a tenant, built a busy practice as a junior criminal barrister. But this being the episode on alternative careers, you can probably guess that it's not her criminal practice we want to ask her about. Today, Olivia is no longer a practising barrister, but an award-winning food writer and chef. Her book, A Half-Baked Idea, tells the story of her transformation from criminal barrister to professional patissier. Olivia, it's lovely to have you on the Pupilish podcast. We'd really love to understand what took you on your journey from the criminal bar through to your present career. Can you explain to us then, what, what looking back, at what point did you decide, actually, I just don't think that I want to continue doing this? So in one sense, it's quite a clean story because I was a pupil barrister. I've been a a pupil barrister for about 18 months at this point. And then my mother died really unexpectedly, really suddenly. Um, And as a way of coping with that grief, although I didn't really identify it as it being a coping mechanism at the time, I started cooking and particularly baking. And I began to think perhaps I could have a career in food. But that's perhaps too clean, because actually I I was finding being at the criminal bar really hard from a much earlier stage than that. I thought it would pass. I thought it was part of pupillage. Um, And then 
shortly after she died, I was offered an accepted tenancy. And I thought that that would sort things out and things would smooth over and the, the stress of being a pupil would, would abate and I would find the happiness in this career that I was hoping for. And that didn't happen. So actually that was happening quite gradually. And alongside it, realistically, the baking was happening very gradually. So I don't remember the exact point at which I thought, I'm going to go from one to the other. But they sort of sat alongside each other and I became more and more unhappy as a barrister, more, more aware that this anxiety that, that sat with me was not going anywhere. Uh, and I became happier and happier in the kitchen. Um, and at some point, I discovered Le Cordon Bleu's website. And my sister described it the other day far better than I could. She said it was a, a career change made not with the head, but with the heart. Uh, and although at the time I spent a lot of time trying to tell people how logical a decision this was <laughs> and how carefully thought out it was, and look at my 12-point plan, she's right. It, it felt... The moment that it had crystallised as an idea, that was it. That's what I was going to do. The point at which I started thinking about leaving was probably probably around the two-and-a-half-year mark, and the point at which I recognised myself as being unhappy was earlier than that. What helped you think, OK, I do really want to leave? Uh, I was in the pub <laughs> with my three best friends from law school who were all in um, criminal or, or public practice, and we were all talking about our days in court. And I think I was, I think I was seconded at the time um, on some kind of disclosure brief. So I'd been at home in my pyjamas doing actually quite interesting disclosure, but n- not the sort of stressful stuff that was making me sad. And I was listening to the three of them talk about their days in court and what they had coming up tomorrow. And one of them had had a, a really, really stressful trial with a jury that came back and acquitted. And another was doing something really thorny. And the third had a sentence. And they were talking about it with this... I mean, they were being realistic, but undisguised thrill. And they were they were sort of recounting the adrenaline that they felt, you know, when the jury came back or the judge delivered the sentence. And I thought, well, I do feel adrenaline when that happens, but only in the way that you feel adrenaline when you have a panic attack. Like, it's, I feel relief afterwards, I don't feel elation. And I started to see the pattern at that point, that that was how I was feeling every time I was doing any kind of case in court. So then tell us about your cordon bleu discovery. Was it nevertheless difficult to say okay that's actually what I'm going to do yeah I was so embarrassing (laughs) I felt I felt for a long time like although I was happy getting off to do this food thing like I'd failed at the bar like I was leaving and I suppose I was leaving because I couldn't hack it I could I could hack it in the sense that I could go to court and I could you know do the best for my clients and I could prep but I felt like I was drowning I I couldn't shake cases when I came home I if a big trial not even a big trial if a trial dropped into my diary a month in the future I would just fixate on it the whole time I used to refresh my diary on my phone constantly to see what I was doing the next day and any anything going in would just make me so desperately anxious um so I I really did frame it in my in my head as not being able to to take it not being able to do it so when I started to tell people that I was leaving I I was really embarrassed I I felt like I, I take, I'd taken up a place on a pupillage that someone who could hack it or would have enjoyed it more should have taken. I felt like I'd let Chambers down, let my clerking team down. Um, I was leaving all my friends. I mean, you don't leave your friends, but I was leaving all my friends. Um, it was a really difficult decision. 
What advice do you have then if there are listeners out there recognising that and looking for what they're going to do instead? So from from a very practical point of view, um, I spoke in confidence to two of my former pupil supervisors, which was very helpful. Um, I mean, I can. I, I, my heart is racing, remembering sitting, waiting to talk to them. It, it's not. It's not an easy thing to do. But I think speaking to someone who you trust and who you trust the confidence of is very helpful. But I also spoke with my senior clerk, and I said to him, "Look, I'm, I'm fairly sure that I am not cut out for this. I think I probably have to leave. But what I would like you to do is, I'd like you to look for um, some kind of." disclosure brief or secondment that will take me out of court for a few months, three months probably, and I want to see if I miss court. Because it might simply be that I'm, I'm wiped out and, and that actually I do enjoy this more than I thought. And I, I thought at the time, that's not the case. But, you know, it might have been and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just making this decision on the fly. And he was brilliant. He found me um, a initially a disclosure brief with another set of chambers and then I ended up going to the Financial Conduct Authority for for a single case that was supposed to last three months and actually I ended up there a year. Um, But it became clear to me during that time that I I was making the right decision, edging my way out of court. So I think speak to people you trust and see if, if there are either areas of the bar that you miss or other areas of maybe advisory bits of the bar if if like me what you're struggling with is the the pressure of being in court and being with um with vulnerable clients every day there are other areas you can explore um i think from a from a less practical more sort of emotional point of view you just have to be kind to yourself you don't have to be a barrister for the rest of your life because you said you were going to be when you were 15 um and that's very easy for me to say now, but it was not easy for me to even consider, let alone articulate, six, seven years ago. I really thought that I was so suited to this profession that, and I wanted it more than anything. And I thought I'd do it for the rest of my life. So it, it can cause a bit of an identity crisis and you have to, you have to treat yourself carefully when that's going on. It's not easy. Be kind. Do you think, looking back, that there's anything you could or should have done in the earlier stages when you were looking at the criminal bar, anything you could have done that would have warned you about how you were going to feel? You know, I I really wish there were, because I would love to be able to say to people who might one day find themselves in my position, here's the secret. But um, on paper, it was perfect for me. And I did all the experience you're supposed to do. So I did mooting and debating and mock trials. I did mini pupillages. I did marshalling. I did experience with charities. I I didn't do a law degree, so I didn't feel penned in by that. I ended up doing the conversion and then bar school. And I loved all of it. Um, and I was good at the bits that I thought were going to be the most important at the bar. So I was good at standing up and speaking. Um, what I didn't realise, and this is the, the only thing that I can look back on and say, would you ever have recognised that? But I don't think I would have, is that although I performed under the pressure of the off-the-cuff advocacy... I didn't thrive on it as a person. So it was actually really detrimental to me as a person to be constantly under that. And I think what can be quite hard to recognise about that when you're training is that you are doing um, perhaps high-pressure exams and high-pressure advocacy exercises in little bursts. It's very hard to know when you get to the bar, when you're doing that as a daily job, 
whether or not that will translate. And for me, it didn't translate. But unfortunately, I'm not, I'm not really sure that there is a way that I could have realised that. And it took me three, four years at the bar even to recognise that that was my problem. So you went from being a culinary student mm. to writing alongside, alongside cooking. Yes. And, and how did your career in, in um, patissiering <laughs> progress? Um, halfway through... So when I went to Le Cordon Bleu, I had no intention whatsoever to do any kind of professional cooking. I went wanting to learn as much as possible, as fast as possible about technique so that I could write more proficiently about it. I was doing a very small amount of professional food writing, not a, you know, not a wage sustainable amount, but I, I would, was, had a column and I was doing a couple of bits here and there beforehand. So, so that earning, was, earning three or four times what you earned at the company. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> they, they, you know, they pay you a year late, but at least they pay you. <laughs> um, yes, so it... T- that was the intention. Become really knowledgeable, know exactly what you're doing, and then you're going to be able to write about it from both the position of someone who at one point knew absolutely nothing and has not been brought up making, gosh, I don't know, hundreds of macarons in a professional Michelin kitchen. Um, you can explain it to people who are baking at home. That was the plan. And then halfway through Cordon Bleu, a barrister friend of mine um, asked me to make his wedding cake. Uh, just just as a, you know, a nice thing, because I'm his friend, he asked me to do it. I'm sure he didn't think that I had a clue what I was doing. It was a very kind gesture. Um, so I did. And it was actually quite nice. It looked, it looked <laughs> quite good. I was more surprised than anyone else. Um, and then that sort of continued for a while. Friends, I was at that age where lots of friends were getting married. So I, I was making wedding cakes here and there. And I, I got better and better. And I progressed through Le Cordon Bleu training and and obviously got better thanks to that as well. And then someone uh, asked me, and, and a friend of mine, can you cater a wedding? And we thought, no. And we said, yes. <laughs> so we taught ourselves how to cater a wedding. Um, probably, again, something that, that the bar gives you, that sort of confidence to go in and think, I don't know what I'm doing now, but I'm sure as hell going to know what I'm doing by the time I get to it. Well, exactly. You just, you know that you've got to say yes. Yes. <laughs> so you can't worry about it a bit later. <laughs> yeah. There's no clerk on the phone, but there's, there's someone else saying, you have to, you absolutely have to, Miss. Um, so yeah, I, I, it all felt quite serendipitous, I suppose. It, it wasn't terribly planned. Um, and I came out the other end making wedding cakes, catering weddings and writing a book. Well, you say that it sounds serendipitous, but it seems to me that what, what you've described is you, A, following your heart, mm. um, B, really taking hold of opportunities as they presented yeah. and, and deciding, as you've just said, well, it, it doesn't matter a great deal if perhaps this is the first time I've baked a wedding cake, the first time I've catered a, a wedding, the first time I've written a book. I'm just, I'm just I'm going go to do it. it. Yeah, and I mean, I know, we, I know we joke about you have to say yes to things, but I... I think that probably is why I am where I am now, because I was fighting down that little voice in you that says you can't do it. Um, and in fact, the first thing I ever catered was my old chamber's garden party. Oh, um, oh my goodness. It was only a little garden party, but it was sort of afternoon tea food. And they were basically asking me to do sandwiches, and I thought, I can't do that. And I looked and thought, yes, of course you can. Just put your mind to it and get on with it. I'd never costed ingredients. I'd never quoted for someone before. But you just, you just kind of jump in. Um, and I think with each, it's a bit like being at the criminal bar, with each first attempt, you don't know what you're doing. And that is in itself very panic inducing. But prepare, do your best. I mean, what, what more can you do? Say yes to things. I was, I was going to ask exactly that because 
to me, I, I, mean, I love going to court and the idea of catering an event makes me come out in a cold <laughs> sweat. I mean, that seems so high stakes. You know, mm. there are going to be hungry people. Um, so, how, I mean, did you find that stressful or was it because you were so loving what you were doing? You, no, it was you didn't really find stressful. It, stressful. it was really stressful. <laughs> and it was pouring down when I arrived in the cab with the food. And I, the cab had dropped me off in slightly the wrong place in Temple. So... I knew that I had to ferry all of this food from one side of Temple to the other, but there was no one to help me. And it was this, this bizarre, I, you know, I'd, I'd done all the food. I, as I say, I'd quoted for it, I'd costed it, I'd done a little menu, I'd given them options. And then suddenly I was stuck in the middle of Temple, unable to get it from one side to the other, thinking, why didn't I bring an umbrella? You're an absolute idiot. <laughs> um, so the, the things that sort of uh, were the most stressful surprised me at the time. And then obviously I, I hovered next to the food the entire time, waiting to hear what anyone had to say about yes. it and, and simultaneously hoping that no one would notice that it was me that had done it um uh, but it was a different type of stress I mean I it, it was it was actually probably good adrenaline rather than bad adrenaline yeah and it was probably the first time I felt that in a quasi-professional context yeah which bits if any of the legal profession do you miss um I miss the people um I miss being surrounded by, I mean, the criminal bar is necessarily full of people who are smart, um, but it's also full of people who have a pretty principled. I mean, no one goes into the bar for the money. <laughs> There's got to be somewhere in you some desire to help the vulnerable people in society. Um, so, whilst every basket of eggs is a couple of bad eggs, generally, people at the criminal bar are really kind, generous, funny, intelligent people. Um, and I, I miss that. I also miss having colleagues because although I have a, a catering company uh, with my best friend and we occasionally have kitchen staff, most of the time I'm working alone at home. So I do miss that. Um, and I miss, I miss the storytelling, the live storytelling, although I did find the, the realities of being an advocate intensely stressful. What I loved about it was the, the framing of a story and the persuading people. And I did quite like addressing a jury with an opening or closing speech. So I do, I do miss that. Looking back at your transition, mm -hmm. what do you wish you'd known? Um, I, I sort of wish I'd known that it would all work out, which I know you can never know. But it would have made the embarrassing part of it much easier <laughs> to, know, to know that... <laughs> To know that not only was it going to make me happy, but that I wouldn't, I wouldn't fall on my face and I wouldn't have to come back with my tail between my legs. I remember ringing my dad. I told him before I told anyone else that I was, I was planning to leave. And he's a solicitor. And I said, you know, I'm really unhappy. I think I'm going to leave. I've been thinking about going to culinary school. And he was very supportive, but he, he was also very practical. He said, you know, you, you'll still be qualified as a barrister. You can always go back. And I thought, oh, my God, please, please don't make me have to go back cap in hand to my chambers or another set of chambers and say I tried and failed. Um, I wish I'd known how happy it would make me uh, and how, actually, probably most importantly, how kind people would be to me about it. Because when I say to you, I was really embarrassed, the way people treated me did not bear out that embarrassment. People were almost to a man, so supportive, so excited for me. You know, my, my colleagues in Chambers were brilliant and I dreaded telling each and every one of them so much because I thought they were going to think I was a fool. <laughs> and they were, they were so nice. I wish I'd known how kind and good people can be to you in those circumstances. 
Thank you ever so much, Olivia. Thank you for having me. Did it feel good to have that wig on again? Yes, it did. Yeah, I still have my wig. I yeah. never, I rarely, it's in a tin, yeah. but I, uh, I still have it. I'm very proud of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, because I've just played, a, 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 for the first time, a silk. I've played a QC in a drama that's coming out in November called The Trial of Christine Keeler. So I play the prosecutor. Oh, oh, yeah. It's the first time I've the ever... Pro- ever pro- yeah, exactly, that's it. So the first time I've ever played a, a barrister proper uh, on Did you TV. really enjoy it? I loved it. I really enjoyed it. They say that many barristers are failed actors, but that does not apply to this guest, Alex McQueen. Alex is an actor perhaps best known as Neil's dad in The Inbetweeners, or Keith Green, the somewhat sarcastic consultant anaesthetist on Holby City. He's also starred in Peep Show, The Thick of It, Peaky Blinders, and many others. But what you may not know about Alex McQueen is that he received a first in English literature from Durham, got an MPhil at Cambridge before training to become a barrister. Alex, welcome to the Pupillage podcast. Can you tell our listeners what drew you into law? Well, um, I think it was the fear of not being able to do acting for a living, in fairness. So it was really, I used the law as a, um, as a sort of professional backup, which was take the pressure off um, the world of acting when I came to it in terms of having something I knew I could sort of fall back on and rely. But actually what drew me to it was my, I did international law as part of my uh, MPhil experience. And I, I, really, I, I just really enjoyed that, to be honest. So that's what triggered an interest in the law as, a, as an activity. And because I'd left the National Youth Theatre and not got an agent uh, after, directly after university, I thought this is very, very difficult to actually get into as a career path. I should make, get myself a professional qualification and do that and then uh, maybe return to acting later on in life. That was the idea. So it was really um, yeah, international law that was the trigger for my interest in it. Yeah, Amazing. I love that the bar was your backup option. That's just <laughs> brilliant. Um, so you did the conversion course then, did you, and then bar school? Yes, so I did the CPE at City University, which was a year. I found that... Very difficult, in fairness. I found the volume of material we had to get through uh, uh, the biggest academic challenge of my sort of uh, existence, really. It was really, really uh, difficult to basically study the entire criminal law, um, European law, constitutional law in sort of four-week batches, and that's all you would really... all you would really have. So I found that very tough, but then went to bar school and I found that a lot easier, a lot lighter and a lot more fun, basically. Then I did uh, a pupillage at um, a place called Eleven Stone Buildings and Four Breams Buildings, both of which I think don't exist anymore. I think Eleven Stone Buildings dissolved about two or three years ago and Four Breams Buildings, I think, merged into Landmark, I think. Ah, okay. Yes, so I did pupillage... I did get a tenancy, but not at a set that exists anymore. I didn't get tenancy at the chambers I'd like to have. Yes. But uh, I did get offered a tenancy, but I, t- I sort of turned that down, to be honest, and, made, and then went in-house as a lawyer for a year and then became an actor. At the point at which you decided to pursue acting full-time, you were working in-house? Yes. In fact, yes, I was working in Leicester Square... Um, as a in-house lawyer at Granada Television, doing contract work, business affairs, 
thinking perhaps if I um, if I become a lawyer in the TV world, I can then eventually become a producer, and then I can give myself parts. And, uh, <laughs> wow, you had a long term. That plan. was a long term plan. Really, but I was sitting impressive. in my office in Leicester Square, and I saw a poster of. Um, Lord of the Rings with Orlando Bloom in it. And I'd been at the National Youth Theatre with Orlando Bloom. And I saw his face sort of looking at me from across (laughs) the square on this big cinema poster. And then I actually watched from my window the premiere itself and I saw the cars turning up and I saw him there. I thought, this is... I I, I want to do this. I'm not expecting in any way to follow that path, obviously, but I'd like to do this and I should do it. So I resigned. I I wrote my resignation, basically. And a month later, I left, and then started the sort of acting uh, acting career, I suppose. And then there was a slight irony last Sunday in that there's a poster just gone up outside the Leicester Square, uh, which has got my face on it, looking oh, back into my office. That's so in perfect. It's for the horrible histories movies. <laughs> Amazing. And so, I, as I was walking through Leicester Square to the premiere last weekend, I saw my face on the poster, and it was sort of looking directly into the office. But yeah, so it was quite a nice. Goodness me! Yes. Uh, bookends to a to a journey. I suppose. Really? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I bet Orlando Blue. Walked past it and thought, Oh, look, <laughs> there's Alex McQueen. No, I'm not at all. No, I don't think you'd remember me from Adam from the National Youth Theatre, but anyway. So, Master McQueen, when you were doing pupillage, bar school, and so on, were you still acting and having thoughts of acting? Yes, so acting was always something that was uh, a desire from childhood. I was very, very keen to do it. It was never a sort of, Oh, what shall I do next? scenario and I remember saying to my one of my pupil masters at 11 stone buildings I'm very very keen to be an actor actually that's my real passion and he said oh right well I wouldn't let that sort of seep (laughs) out into general chambers knowledge and anyway when I didn't get tenancy I remember it very vividly Um, the QC ran me up to say I'm sorry Alex it's yes it's not good news at our end so uh, we wish you all the very best I went into chambers the next day to sort of collect my belongings and this barrister who I confided in said you and I know this is the best day of your life I felt very I was very disappointed not to get tenancy because it was sort of it's 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 a bit like getting a degree, I suppose. You've worked for a year towards something, and you, if you don't get that tendency, it can feel very, very disappointing. Um, but he said, yeah, as, when he said, you know this is the best day of your life, I thought, maybe that's true. And frankly, had I got the tendency, I would have remained as a barrister because it's not something you can really do part-time frankly it's, mm. it's, it's just as uh, it's just as devoted as being an actor is really and we'd still have you on the podcast <laughs> so i love the bar i must admit i come back here i've come back here for the last 15 years to private guest night with guests just to evangelize the sort of eccentricity <laughs> of the place because i love it and i thoroughly enjoy the intellectual rigor of the bar and I miss that colossally as an actor uh, acting is great fun it's it's entertaining it's fascinating in terms of the places you get to go and the people you get to meet but intellectually it is barren wow. if I'm perfectly honest I mean if you're doing mm. Othello or Hamlet at the National Theatre yeah there's probably a bit of thought that can go into that academically but outside of that there is no intellectual rigour certainly from my experience yes um at all there are other mental skills you have to bring to bear and i remember when my first day on set on a film i was not yet the word is terrified really of forgetting lines and not doing the job properly with a crew of about a hundred people 
It was my first ever experience on a film set with and once the cameras start rolling, you really are under the you're really under pressure not to get things wrong. And I just remember, don't worry about the acting and the part. Just pretend this is the high court where you were doing winding up petitions and f- get, let your mind focus in a forensic manner on getting your material right and out in a in a competent way. So it was actually experiences in court that I brought to the film set on my first film to allow my mind to focus and not crumble. So it was very valuable. The, the bar has been extraordinarily valuable on that front. And, and is there any part of the legal profession that you are perhaps glad to see the back of? Yes, I think the volume of material I found... I loved the principles of the law, but the actual practice of 30 ring binders full, full, full of statements and background documents that you do need to be totally uh, over in terms of uh, covering it, that, that I don't miss. The idea of having yeah 30 ring binders of material in your mind and be able to cross-reference that at a moment's notice. Um, I don't miss that. And I don't miss the fact that once you're actually on in court, you have a very finite window in, in terms of that case to get your points across and do it effectively. Whereas on a film and TV set, those errors can be very quickly rectified by second, third, fourth, fifth chances. Yes. So I don't, I, yes, I don't miss the live aspect of being in court. Because actually, bizarrely, public speaking is not something I'm utterly comfortable with. I don't mind acting and pretending, but I don't particularly enjoy being me in a live circumstance. So, yeah. Hmm. What advice do you have then for others of our listeners who may be out there who are currently engaged on a path towards towards silk eventually but who feel that actually they'd far rather be actors one of the difficult things i think i have to handle is the rejection and the moments of failure i think it's very easy for people to sort of look oh he's off the telly or he's off this film yet they're the good moments and they're the 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 exciting moments but they come at with quite a large price tag in terms of the downtime you might have and making sure you have the mental resilience to keep going through those darker patches basically so failure management is a critical skill i think as a as a as an actor do not be sort of um put off by uh, the, the steps backwards that you may have to make i saw a great quote recently on um on the tube which said water does not uh, cut through rock because it's strong is because it's persistent and I thought that's yeah that's a useful uh, philosophy there's so much ahead of you that you can use with the skills that the bar affords uh, have no panic and have no shame that's such a great great note to end on Grand. thank you thank Pleasure. you Master McQueen Not thank you very much yeah, it's been such fun talking to you I think I'd still quite like to be an actress Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Doppirano. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode. 